session is pointed at goers. And so if you are a parent, if you're a grandparent, uh, I hope you don't kind of tune this one out and you're waiting for the sender's session. Maybe uh, God has your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter going into this. And for church leaders, uh, for church members to be thinking how to raise up more goers. Goers are uh, goers, and by goers I mean goers who go and they actually stay and they see a strong New Testament church planted. They're fairly rare in our times. I, like Nick said, I have two of our students with us. Uh, the program that I lead down at Radius is a nine-month program, and they're both coming back for their second semester. So Sharon uh, Tang went to UCLA, uh, has a background in physiology. Why am I messing that up? Okay, physiology. And then Luke, Patrick Henry, and then Reformed Theological Seminary, a graduate of both of those institutions, and both of them are on their way to the field. They're in the process of being trained to be a goer that stays and sees that church planted. And so, uh, man, don't disqualify yourself from this session just because you're past the age bracket that you can think of as being a goer. Maybe God has you impacting some goers in your family or in your church body family here. And so, this session is very much pointed in that direction, and I will do my best. Sharon, in, 50, or in 35 minutes, if I'm going over time, make sure you raise your hand. So just a little bit of background uh, as we get into the mentality of goers. This is not something that is unique to our time. The people of God since the New Covenant have been a people concerned with the gospel moving out. The gospel is always meant to be continuing to move out. It's like this uh, pressure moving further and further to those places that have yet to be heard. Every one of the apostles, if you know your church history, were martyred in foreign lands except for one, the apostle James. Um, everyone else, foreign countries, dying in foreign lands, taking the last command of our Lord and Savior seriously to where they were moving out, part of that movement. First through third centuries, the epicenter of the church in Asia Minor and then the continent of Africa, the historic Catholic, and by Catholic I don't mean Roman Catholic, but the historic church has always been concerned with this, moving things further and further. And so the African missionaries, the Asia Minor, the churches of modern day Turkey, what we would say uh, previously was Asia Minor, moving out to those further reaches. And then the 16th century with John Calvin, as more French refugees were coming into Geneva. And he had a congregation that was booming, and they were thinking about heading back to their homelands of France, and then further on, uh, moving into Germany, and even some of them to Hungary and Poland, and eventually to Brazil. Missionaries sent from John Calvin's little church in Geneva. This was a concern even in those times. <clears throat> and Calvin stressed the training of missionaries, sending, counseling, corresponding with them regularly. We have over a thousand letters from John Calvin to his missionaries who were on the field, faithful as a sending church as they continue to progress further and further out. I love this phrase. It reminds me a little bit of R.C. Sproul. A good missionary is a good theologian. That's John Calvin. Kind of reminds me of a book. Every uh, Christian is a theologian. <clears throat> Whether it's John Huss or the Bohemian Reformation, uh, 50 years prior to Luther, William Carey in the 18th century, who ended up going to India, uh, he's known as the father of modern missions. Those who understood the faith clearly, who have their Christianity rooted not in historicity, but rooted in Scripture, they always saw the need for members of their body or themselves to continue moving out, to taking the gospel to places, and more specifically, we're going to talk about this more tomorrow, to people groups that have yet to hear and have yet to see a strong New Testament church planted. I'm going to really go after that tomorrow. The task is not complete when we have converts Converts are a great first step. Disciples and then seeing them gathered into a New Testament church, that's the goal of the Great Commission. And we'll dive into that more. So God's people since the time of the New Covenant have always been concerned with going. Going is part of our DNA because it was part of our master's command, his final mission that he gave to the church. I love the way John Piper puts this. Those of you that have read Let the Nations Be Glad, and I actually brought some handout books for those of you that are here physically. We'll do those between the going and the sending session. Uh, John Piper phrases it this way, if you believe this book to be true, this book being the Bible, 
you have three options when it comes to missions. Going, sending, or disobeying. There is no fourth option. If you believe the book to be true. Now, if it's not, if it doesn't have complete control over your life, you have a myriad of options. But if this book holds sway over your life and we pull our life's design from what the scriptures teach us, going, sending, disobeying. And you fit into one of those categories. And so this session pointed specifically at the goers. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts. I want to touch on a verse, and then we're going to dive into the two main questions of this session. Acts 1, verse 6. Tomorrow we'll get into Matthew 28, 16 to 20. That's kind of a parallel passage. It's a different account. A lot of people get this confused. There's actually three different accounts of the Great Commission. Acts 1 and Matthew 28 are the most famous ones, but Acts 1, 6 for our purposes today. So, it starts this way in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lift, lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. So our final command from our Lord and Savior, given to his disciples, and his disciples giving it to their disciples and passing it on to the churches, was this command to take the message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I want to point out three things just in the context of the going of what we're looking at today. Number one is the context of the Jewish mind, how the disciples, they, they catch a lot of flack sometimes, and I think unnecessarily for how they, they were thinking at this time. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember the Old Testament motif and how God was reaching the nations through the Old Testament. The plan for the Old Testament was never for the nation of Israel to go to the nations. It was for the nations to come to Israel. And as Israel walked with her God, as she fellowshiped with, their, with her king, the nations would see this and they would be drawn to this. And we see this coming up through the time of David, through Solomon. That's why there's so many. When we were teaching the Yembe Yembe's, I know some of you got to see that video. The, the people group that I was working with, um, 13 years among them, and walking them through the Old Testament. They had no knowledge that there was even a New Testament. We were just walking them through the biblical narrative. And as we're walking them through, and we come to the time of David, and we come to the time of Solomon, some of them would ask the question, is this it? Is this, are we waiting for, is Solomon the one that we're waiting for? Is he the one that we're speaking of? Because of all the promises that were being fulfilled. The nations were coming from far away. The leaders, they were seeing the glory of God with his people. This is the Old Testament motif. We don't go to the nations. The nations come to us. But Jesus flips this all on its head. And he says, you will be my witnesses. You're going to be the goers. Everything changes in the new covenant. No longer do we stay and they come to us. Praise God when the nations do come to us. We should be those types of people, that type of a church, that when refugees, when students from far away, when different peoples from different countries come to our locale, we are inviters, we are evangelists, we are willing participants in the gospel. But the general trend of the church for the Great Commission is always going, going. That's the trend that we see Jesus marking out here. And he says this, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is where sometimes the exegesis falls a little short. I hear so many sermons. Well, this is our Jerusalem. Michigan's Judea. Samaria, that's the United States. And to the ends of the earth, they still get that one right. Guys, you realize that when Jesus said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, those are actual physical geographic locations and the disciples knew exactly what he meant. This isn't allegory. Praise God, Jerusalem has the gospel. Praise God, Judea has the gospel. Praise God, Samaria to this day has the gospel in their language with scriptures that they can read clearly. Clearly. 
to the ends of the earth still remain. There's still a part to that final commission that still remains unaccomplished. And at one point, this part of the world was the ends of the earth. It no longer is. We have the gospel in our language. We have healthy churches that teach the gospel clearly. To the ends of the earth is further out now. It will require further sacrifice to get to those locations. These final words of the Lord Jesus, I'll press this a little bit more tomorrow, but final words have meaning. I have a 20-year-old son. He's going to college right now, and before I go on trips, I usually have a little pep talk with him. And we always have a certain phrase that we talk about, uh, walk with God, remember whose kid you are. That doesn't mean remember that your last name is Buser. Remember that you're my only son. That means remember whose child you are. So that if the plane goes down, if something happens, if on his side or on my side, these final words are ringing in his ears. Final words mean something, guys. And in every account we have of Scripture, Every account we have of the Great Commission, these are Jesus' final words. He could have spoken on the family. He could have spoken on faith. He could have spoken on the primacy of the church. But he chooses his final words as going words to be sent to go out. So I want to cut uh, the remainder of my speaking time uh, and go after two questions. Who can and who should be a goer? And what does it take to be a goer? So at the outset, let me make a couple things clear. When I speak about missions, and some people will call this frontline or pioneer missions, missions in the missions field is kind of this nebulous term today where if you're doing something with a family member outside of your home, you're doing missions. Like, I don't really subscribe to that theory. I think it's too nebulous. And if you water down missions too much, if everyone's a missionary and everything is a mission field or every place is a mission field, then what you get is no one's a missionary and nowhere is a mission field. We end up watering it down to the extent to where we never actually accomplish what our Lord Jesus Christ left us to do. And so to give you maybe a little bit tighter of a definition, and I'll dive into this a little bit more, the strategy or how we get there tomorrow when we get into Romans chapter 15. But for our purposes today, when I speak of missions, this is what I mean. I'm speaking of those who are sent out by their local church needing to cross, in many cases, geographic, cultural, and linguistic boundaries to reach unreached people groups. Not unreached peoples. Unreached peoples we have in Lansing and San Diego. Unreached people groups who have no gospel, no disciples, and most importantly, no church. Let me say that again. It's a little bit of a long definition, but uh, peoples, speaking of those who are sent out by their local church needing to cross geographic, cultural, and linguistic boundaries to reach unreached people groups who have no gospel, no disciples, and most importantly, no church. Without a New Testament church, disciples tend to rise and fall in one generation. Churches are historic. Churches last for generations. And so planting those New Testament churches. So when I speak about mission, that's what I'm speaking about. Just so we're clear on our terms and it doesn't end up with this missions means this or that. It's actually got a pointed definition to it when I'm speaking about it. So when I say missions, the reason I'm going after that particular crossing linguistic, cultural, and geographic boundaries is because there are about, by latest count, 3,112, maybe some will say 3,120 something, but 3,112, we'll use that number, unreached language groups in the world today. Entire languages, and language is the primary definer by any objective anthropological definition, entire language groups with no gospel, no disciples, and no church. The whole language group. They speak one language. They use that language for everything that they do. Nobody within their context, nobody within that group has the gospel. And there is no gospel light from a local church. And then the other fact of this, the reason that I press so deeply into this is that less than 5% of Christian giving, when I say Christian, I don't mean the broad definition, I mean Protestant evangelical churches, 
5% of Christian giving goes towards those type of missionaries, and less than 1% of our missionaries being sent out by the Protestant evangelical church are going to those places. 5%, 1%. 3,100 people groups left on the face of the earth. Nothing. That's what we're pointing towards. When we speak of goers today, we're talking about getting to those places. By God's grace, these two guys are going to do that. They're going to make it to those types of places. This is what the entire focus of our school. And again, there are, there's wonderful things. There's things that are out there today. Um, man, there's some wonderful brothers that I know of that are drilling wells. There's other uh, brothers that are working with national churches. There are some organizations that I know of that are working with helping people out of human trafficking, uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship, pilots who bring supplies. Those are wonderful things. But if we're going to see the Great Commission actually get to those last places, we're going to have to revise our strategy to where that's the goal. That's where we're headed. Now, how do we build into young people everything that we need to get them to there and then to see a New Testament church planted among those peoples? That's the school that I'm a part of down there. So anyways, that's the focus of where we're going with the goers part today. Who can and who should be a goer? Here's our two questions. So I'm going to answer these with three points, each question. Uh, who can and who should be a goer? And again, today is more just, um, if you didn't realize it, it's more informational. I'm trying to give you kind of the nuts and bolts tomorrow. We'll dive into scripture more deeply to look at the strategy and the task of the goers. Who can and who should be a goer? Uh, first, the last places are the last places for good reason. There's a reason why the last 3,112 language groups left on the face of the earth are the last ones. It's not like willy-nilly. Ah, some are in Nepal, some are in Papua New Guinea, some are in China. That's not the case. They're the last ones because they're hardest to reach. They have the hardest languages. They have national governments that are hostile to Christianity. It will take abnormally well-trained people to get to those locations. If you look at a map of Africa and you look at where the first missionaries arrived and where they worked, the climates were the most hospitable. It's great. It makes total sense. The whole country's unreached. Why wouldn't they go to a place where there's less malaria, less typhoid, less yellow fever? They would go to the places where they can last the longest. But as those places began to become reached, there were churches, outposts of light in the country, then it starts to get to the harder places and the harder places. And we see that happening on a global scale. The places that are left today, where entire people groups have no missionaries, have no church, they're the hardest ones to reach. They have very difficult languages. If you're going to communicate the gospel clearly, you have to learn somebody's language. If you're going to communicate the gospel to where it actually comes in conflict with their worldview, you have to know their culture. And to get to these places, it's going to be quite difficult. And here's the deal. For URC Church, and for those watching from other churches today, it will take the best and the brightest, it will take the flower of the church to get to these locations. There used to be this idea, and it still persists in some quarters, that, well, she's a little bit awkward. Well, he's a little bit strange. You know what? They'll be perfect missionaries. Let's send them to the field. We should send them to India. They're kind of weird here. We wouldn't make them a greeter, let alone an elder. My goodness, that's not, never going to happen. Let's send them to China. That'll be perfect. Guys, that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. That's a bad mentality. It will take the best, the brightest. It will take the ones that we love the dearest, that we say that's the future of the church. Those are the ones we should be sending. Those are the ones we're raising up. These are elder qualified on the trajectory to being the leaders of our churches. Those are the ones we send. Those are the ones who can make it to these last people groups. So number one, the last places are the last for good reason. Let's send our best. Number two, recommended. Who should be a goer? They should be the ones that are recommended by their local church. Some of you guys got to see Cross Conference, and you got to see uh, some wonderful speakers. I was blessed tremendously by David Platt's message, by Kevin DeYoung's message, uh, especially by John Piper. Man, I think uh, John is just... 
He's a gift to the church in our day and time. But what happens coming out of some of these conferences and even an event like this is that young people get excited about doing this. I want to be one of those ones to be a goer. Praise God. Now go back and be a faithful church member. Be a faithful church member before you go, while you're going, and when you come back. Be known by your church. Whether that means pulling weeds, carrying sound equipment, teaching in the Sunday school, being a part of things here without having any upstage presence. Faithful missionaries are first faithful church members. And sometimes in big conferences, we get riled up. Where's the church body that knows you, that's sending you? Parents and grandparents, help your young people to understand the value of being a faithful church member. If we're going to plant local churches, we better know what it means to be a local church member. And so sometimes younger people in their zeal, good Knowledge, not so much there. The knowledge part is being part of the local body first and foremost so that we know what we're going to plant. So number two, if you want to be a goer, who can and who should be a goer? Those that are recommended by their local church. This is a criteria for getting into Radius. It's the number one reason that we turn applications away. People who want to come and be a part of the Radius training, you have to be recommended by your local church. And if you're not recommended by them, we say, brother, sister, we love you. This may be your future. Go back and get involved in your local church. Fill out your application in another two years. We'll talk to you then. Be sent well from your local body. And then number three, <clears throat> the two questions, uh, who can and who should be a goer? Number three, walk through open doors. Those who are looking, and this is a very tricky thing uh, when you start talking about missionary calling, because there's a lot of young people who in earnestness are looking for, do I have a missionary call? And I usually, when I'm talking to students, college students in particular, or those who have graduated from college and they're looking at going, they're wanting to go to those types of places that are still unreached today, unreached people groups, uh, and we talk through the process of discerning, man, does God have this in your future? The first thing I want to know is, one, have they been faithful in their local church? And then number two, are they walking through the open doors that God presents? If God presents an opportunity, they're walking through that. If God has given them health, they're continuing to head down that missionary path. They're faithful in their word, they're faithful in their church, but as they see the open doors, they continue to walk. I don't think, and this is part of my wife and my story as we were looking at going into missions, uh, we never got a missionary call. Never got it. And when I see missionary call, like some sort of burning in the bosom or that kind of thing, or we saw Papua New Guinea in the sky, or we never got that kind of thing. And I was actually quite shocked when I made it to the country of Papua New Guinea we were in our location in Yembe Yembe for almost eight years, and then I ended up on the leadership team, and we had a national conference where all of the missionaries in Papua New Guinea that were working there, we had about 200 or some that were there for the national conference, and we did a little impromptu survey, and we asked the question, how many of you got a missionary call? And we were looking for that kind of, ah, I just, last night, I felt it. I'm supposed to go to Papua New Guinea. And of the 200 plus, not one of them, not one had a missionary call. They read verses like what I just read to you there, Acts 1, 6 through 10, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Romans 15, 17 to 20, Romans 10, Revelation 5. And they said, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll walk away from what I know, a promising career. My family lives on this block. I've grown up in this city, but I will take that first step. And they believed, and here's the thing, and this is what I think is so biblical. They believed in a God who will open doors and a God who has the power to close doors as well. Just in my time at Radius in the last four years, I have seen so many young people who God not them, not their parents, not their grandparents, not their employers. God closes the door. My own brother 
who deeply wants to be overseas. And God closed the door, and he is no longer going. God has the power to open doors, and God has the power to close doors. And as God opens those doors, and you feel from these verses, and you have the confirmation of your local church leadership saying, yes, we see this too. You walk, brother. You walk, sister. Walk through those doors, and trust that the God of heaven has the power to close those doors as well. That's the missionary call. We trust what we see, and we trust our church leadership, and we walk through the doors. And if God doesn't have that force, he closes those. That is how I see the missionary call playing out. If you're waiting for a sign, if you're waiting for something unique, most likely you're going to be waiting until Christ returns or he calls you home. Because it usually doesn't come. I wanted something like that. I dearly wanted something like that. I would come out of the ocean and I would look on the beach and I was like, is there anything there? Like an arrow pointing in that direction or a country. There's the continent of Africa. Got it. Saw the sign. Got the missionary call. Never happened. And for the vast majority, almost all of our radius students as well that come down every year, the call they see is the call from Scripture. This is what our King has asked of us as a representative of your local church, do you have their blessing and do you walk in that knowledge? So that would be the, the answer that I would give to who can and who should be a goer. What does it take to be a goer? And I'll close on this. How much time? Am I close on time, Nick? How are we looking? Okay, all right. <clears throat> so I'll close on this one. And then we'll open it up for question and answer. Uh, what does it take to be a goer? Uh, number one, the grace of God to walk away from your plans and dreams. The grace of God to walk away from your plans and dreams. Some of you, I think, got to watch the YMBMB video um, and know kind of a little bit of my background. I, was at, I went through college, uh, got a degree in business administration. Uh, my wife and I like most college students, came out with significant amount of college debt. I entered into the workforce and uh, started working as a baseline accountant for a Dutch company. And then I worked my way up the ladder fairly quickly. I discovered I had a, a decent aptitude for accounting. Um, and then I started working in Europe and eventually, within a two-year period, worked my way up to chief financial officer for that Dutch multinational and got to see uh, and experience some incredible things. And praise God, we were faithful in our local church through that time. We were supporting five missionaries, uh, ourselves not in totality, but we were a small fraction of their support, active uh, in the youth department in our church. And God, through his word, continued to call us. But brothers and sisters, my gifting, my passion, that's the big one these days. What's your passion? You know what? you got to be careful with passion. Most of our passions will land us in jail. Passion's not a good thing to judge what you should do with your life. What is your Savior's passion? What is He about? What does He care for? And my gifts and my abilities and my backgrounds, they fall under His passions, His goals, His mission. That's what we're to be about as Christians. And so it was a revelation to me when I made it to Papua New Guinea, and I, I had different offers from the mission agency. Uh, would you handle our accounting department? Would you do these things? Friends, <clears throat> I've found that as I speak to different college groups, the type of young person, the type of person who can get to unreached language groups and stay and plant a local church, there's two marks of them. Number one, they have the courage to walk away from their hopes and dreams. And number two, they believe that they're citizens of another country. This is short term. Lansing, Michigan, San Diego, California, West Virginia in Luke's case. This, is, this isn't your home. This hasn't ever been my home. And the older you get, you start to recognize that. But it's the rare young person that figures that out. I'm gifted. I have ability. I'm 
drawn towards this. We're all drawn towards the things that we have a natural ability towards. But to be able to walk away from that, to do this, you know how often I used my accounting ability in YMBYMB? Oh my goodness, I taught at the end when we're prepping our church for our departure, the YMBYMB church, and we've got elders in place and deacons in place. I did a small business accounting class. And I mean, it was like <clears throat> for sixth graders. And it was just, it was rocket science. Like this is way over the top stuff. And that was it. That was the only time I used any of my background in gifting. Yes, the general uh, trend of having a good liberal arts education, having Bible training, that's tremendously beneficial. But my gifting, my passion never came into play. My passions are subservient to my kings. My giftings are given back to my king the rare young person who can do that and who can see this world, this isn't my home. My home awaits. I can do anything. This is where you see stories of Amy Carmichael, John Payton, Adniram Judson. How did they walk away from flourishing ministries, incredible abilities? Because they had this vision for heaven. That's my home. What does it take to be a goer? The courage to walk away from your dreams your plans. And then number two, and I'm going to hit this drum quite hard, so some of you might not like it, but number two, a love for your local church. One of the things I love about the Radius program, when students come into our training program, they come out loving their local church more by the end of it. Love your local church with its warts and all. There is no such thing as a perfect church. But the local church is the bride. It's the candlestick. It is the instrument for accomplishing the Great Commission. Not Lone Ranger Christians. Christians who want to see the Great Commission accomplished apart from the local church, no such thing we find in Scripture. No such thing. Love your local church. And through their sending you, through their understanding of who you are, be sent out to accomplish the Great Commission. You're an ambassador of your local church. Lone Ranger Christianity is a dead end, and it's unbiblical. So love your local church. That would be number two. And then finally, number three, good training. What does it take to be a goer? Good training. To see that accomplished that local church planted in a cross-cultural context, it's going to take unusual training, Bible training and practical training. <clears throat> I'll do a session tomorrow night, and I'll talk about John Payton a little bit. This is where John Piper, Lord love him, he's told everybody it's John Patton. And then I got with the Banner of Truth, guys. Have you, any of you ever read Banner of Truth books? Okay, Banner of Truth is glorious. But the Banner of Truth guys are from Scotland, where John Payton is from. And so they pulled me aside after I taught one session. They said, listen, Patton's the general. I can't do a Scottish accent. Patton's the general. Payton's the missionary. Oh, okay. So anyways, John Piper, Lord love him. He keeps calling him John Patton. It's not Patton. Patton's the general. Payton's the missionary. So John Payton, um, he, what he went through 10 years of training before he made it overseas. I wouldn't recommend that, but 10 years before he got to the field. Don't be afraid, young people. Don't be afraid, parents. Don't be afraid, church leaders, of pulling the reins in just a little bit to make sure your candidates are qualified before you send them. Zeal without knowledge, to have the knowledge. It will take some unique training to get into the country of North Korea, to get into Sudan, to get into Iraq and stay, to get in on a missionary visa, not going to happen, to get in on a tourist visa, temporary, you're not going to see a church planted, to get in and stay, that's going to be a whole nother animal. That's what we're going for. Good training. Know your Bible, know the hurdles that are coming and get trained to get over those hurdles. That would be what I would say, what it takes to be a goer. So the grace of God to walk away from your plans and dreams, love for your local church, good training. That would be the thrust of a good goer being able to go and to stay to see the end goal accomplished. So that's just, man, kind of we're scratching the top of it as far as going. 
So I'll open it up, Nick, if that's all right, um, for Q&A. And I realize this is somewhat unorthodox in COVID times. I'm really glad you guys have open restaurants. We will hopefully participate in those later on today. But um, if there are any questions, I can come around real quick and give you a mic if you'd like to ask. We start here and go to Chris. So you mentioned North Korea. Yes. Um, gets my mind going a little bit. Are there Christians there? How did they become Christians if there are, if there are none? Hmm. You walk in there with a Bible and a visa to start a business, and then what does that look like? Yeah, no, North Korea is going to be a challenge. And uh, honestly, brother, I mean, just for the sake of this being live cast, I probably will discuss it maybe more with you, but how you get into North Korea, who can get into North Korea, how you get in there. Um, there it's interesting to me how Pyongyang was such an epicenter for Christian vibrancy for so many years. If you've ever read the book Korean Pentecost, it's a fabulous read, and just how some, uh, some different brothers all the way up through the early 20th century, the strength of the church there, and then everything after the split between the two countries, North and South Korea, what happened after that. But to get in there today, it's, there's some peculiarities to get in there. It's not going to be 10 of us from this context that are going to be able to do that, but there are some ways to get in there. But I'll talk with you more about that afterwards, if that's all right. I was curious when I watched the video about you with the Yimby Yimby hmm. about this question. And then I've also known people who have gone and having children, their first child, hmm. seems like a, a real big decision point of leaving that context to go somewhere where there's modern healthcare. Hmm. So I'm wondering how you counsel goers or prospective goers in terms of having children where they're going to be somewhere where there's not a hospital, there's not even necessarily a doctor. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question, a very valid question. Um, the first thing I do before I counsel people that are heading overseas with young children is I try and get them to read missionary biographies prior to going and to read of the history of the church and how the church made advances, advances meaning taking the gospel to far lands and how much they had to suffer to do that. <clears throat> John Payton, again, uh, ten, five of his kids didn't live past the age of two. The other five did. Some of them didn't live past their teen years, and eventually only three of his children ended up living. And the history of the sacrifice, and <clears throat> I'm not saying that if you go, this is what's going to happen to you, but I think it's one of those things that you almost have to look squarely in the eye and go, this is one of those costs. One of, one of the things, and I, man, I'll be honest, I appreciate Kevin DeYoung in the way that he expresses this. I read an article by him a couple years ago. One of the last unquestioned idols in the American church, family. Family. To be able to walk away from family, to be able to say this is going to cost me, cost my wife, it's going to cost my kids too. That's a reality if you're going to get into missions. And if if that's a tough one for you, man, I, I would maybe recommend this may not be for everybody. I'm not saying go there, man. When, I, <clears throat> when we made it to Papua New Guinea and getting malaria for the first time, and then my son getting malaria, that's a different challenge. That's a big-time different challenge. There's ways to mitigate that risk, and we're going to walk through that in the training program that we run, uh, how we'll put you through some medical classes. We'll also, also put you through some things that will help uh, with a lot of tropical things that you'll go through, but there is no guarantees in this, just like there's no guarantees in this world. But there are some heightened risks, and family is one of them. And it is one of those things that we're going to address quite thoroughly because it it's a tough one. It's a tough one for everybody. My wife and I are actually in the midst, and Luke and Sharon, you guys can talk to them afterwards. Uh, we're teaching a class right now called How to Raise Normal Missionary Kids because you get a lot of missionaries that they're pretty laser honed on what they're doing and their kids sometimes uh, go through some peculiar things and how to see normal missionary kids that can weave back in to their passport countries, that can transition to their host countries. Those are big questions and these are, these are stewardships given to us for 18, 19, 20 years. We want to be faithful with them. But yeah, there is going to be a price paid for that 
if you're going to get to those places. So good question. Yeah, very relevant for sure. Thanks. You mentioned um, that you gave up your accounting background and your um, this was wondering any advice you'd have for young people going to college about what majors they should be thinking about. And is there a way that, I mean, you probably don't have any regrets that you went into accounting, but I mean, if you had to do that over again, would you have gone into something different? I mean, I guess, mm. and obviously different people get called at different times, but thoughts about college uh, majors? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. The majors right now, because if you're gonna get into some of these closed access countries in the Middle East, North Africa, um, for, I, I don't love the term 1040 window. I think it just kind of, it's, it's become something it shouldn't have become. But if you're going to get into those types of countries, you're going to have to have a business visa. You're going to have to get in on the back of doing something for, not a fake one, a real one, to where you're actually doing something. And so the best majors for that, that we see and that we recommend to high school and college kids, I say we being the Radius staff, uh, will recommend business, engineering, education, uh, and then it starts to get into a handful of others. The honest truth, though, is if they get a degree from a Western institution in almost anything, it is tremendously valuable to get into almost any country. Further down the list, you'll get into the medical professions. The trick with the medical professions, most people think if I get a nursing degree or if I get some background in that, the problem is, is that once you get into the country, you're expected to use that. And then your ability to learn a language, your ability to spend time with the people group that you're actually going to reach, and the time that it will take really takes a hit because you're using so much on the medical side. So the business, engineering, education, those are kind of our top three that we would recommend if there is no other factors in the mix there. And so, yeah, good question, though. You mentioned that we want to send goers who stay until a healthy church is planted. Can you just briefly lay out, like, what, what makes a church ready for the missionaries to leave for it to be independent or self-reproducing or however you would define that? Yeah, excellent. No, I would speak again, mostly from our experience in Yembiembi, and then I was a church planning consultant for a lot of Southeast Asian countries, Thailand, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and just seeing churches there. And we actually have a tool, or a bunch of tools, three or four of them, that we use to evaluate the health of a local church. But you're looking for, number one, do they have qualified elders? Do they have leadership in place? Do they have deacons? Do they have church structure to where they are recognized leaders and the congregation recognizes them themselves? Do they have the Word of God in their own language? Not the language that they use when they go to town, but their actual heart language. For us to leave the Yembiembi church without the Word of God in their hands, you're, just, you're talking about something that is very short-term. So do they have the Word of God, and is there discipleship going on? What's happening? What are the men? These are my six guys, and so when we finished the teaching, when we're going through the New Testament, um, I had my six guys. I had nine at one point. These are the guys that are Brooks's guys. I'm discipling these guys when I'm going out, when I'm going hunting, I'm going with one of these guys. If I'm going to town to do something, if I'm going to do a church planning evaluation, with a group over in another part of the country of Papua New Guinea, these six guys are going with me. They're just going with me everywhere I go. Who are the six guys that you six are pouring into? Is discipleship happening within the local church that is being planted? And then you're kind of looking at different factors. How is the health of the church? How are they perceived by the outside community, by the unbelievers, by other people groups? Do they have a heart to see this message go beyond their own people group? Do they have a heart to reach the parts of their own people group that speak their same language? Why or why not? And so you're looking at all those factors, but really, I mean, you're looking at that leadership component, discipleship, and the Word of God. Those three primary ones, they're kind of your barometer for the health of the church and mostly when you're looking at expat missionaries, missionaries from a different country going in, you have to be very careful because there's a point to where your presence can be counter-effective. It can actually be pulling away. You're becoming Papa, and Papa is not a good role. You want to be father to them to start it, but you don't want to have your presence staying there so long to where now they've become reliant on you. So you're really trying to be wise. When is the time when I need to pull back? I'm preaching less on Sunday. I'm in the pews. I'm an active church member, but I'm not, I'm no longer the main guy they're looking for. And then I need to physically be gone for three months. That's what when my wife and I, our team did. 
we stepped out for three months, then we would go back for three months, then we stepped out for six months, and then we went back for two months, and then we stepped out for a year, and then we went back for two months, and then we finally left the country, and I still go back to visit every year just to check on those Because in a non-paternalistic way, these are our kids, and we love them dearly. Even your own children, someday when they go to college, someday when they have their kids, you still want to see them. You still want to check up on them. So good question. Sorry, that was a really long answer. I'll work my way to this side. Brooks, can, uh, I heard this on a podcast. Can you tell us real quick your uh, Yembi Yembi name and how you got that? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. My Yembi Yembi name is Yakutal. And, I mean, we got adopted into clans. I think you're talking about the clan thing. When I'm got... thinking the pig story. Is oh, that, is that... well, <laughs> the pig story, yeah. Uh, we, so a boy changes into a man in Yembi Yembi when he kills a pig by himself at night for the first time. So when we moved into Yembi they asked us, and there was two other families, so they came to the two other men on the team and myself, and they asked us about a month into it, uh, have you guys ever killed a pig? And one of the guys, he grew up in Minnesota. He'd been like on a pig farm, and they shoot him with a stun gun, or I don't know what they do. But anyways, they, he killed a pig before. And he, yeah, I killed a pig. No, no. Have you killed a pig with a spear at night by yourself? No, I haven't done that. Oh, my goodness. So they huddle up, and then they come back, and then we start hearing this name floating around the village. And they, started, they made up a name for us. They called us overgrown boys because we were these large-bodied guys. Most of the Yembis are about this big. They got shoulders out to here because they've been paddling canoes, but they're really short. And we were these really tall guys. And they called us these overgrown boys because we never killed a pig. And so in order for us to be a respected man in the community so that when the gospel came, it didn't come from a boy, an overgrown boy, it came from a man. We actually started going out at night and we started going hunting with them, learning how to walk through the, the trails barefoot. Um, you couldn't wear deodorant. We figured that out about two weeks into it. That was real health for our marriage, but because um, the pigs can smell you. And so you can't wear deodorant for a few days before you go hunting. And finally, after it was about five or six months, uh, we got our first pig. I got a first one, and then another guy got one. It was painful, but anyways, we did it. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. uh, you seem to be primarily talking to young people. What would you say to or what experience do you have with people that are middle-aged that have felt a call or feel a willingness to go? Is that a closed door that now you're a sender or all? Yeah. I guess no, the reason, and that's, that's a good question because I should have clarified that in my message. The reason that I'm talking primarily to young people is because of that language acquisition component, to learn another language in a foreign country. Uh, Adniram Judson and some of the guys that went to Burma for the first time, they actually sent back to Boston a plan for sending teenage children to Burma. That's how we were going to get the Burmese actually with a strong missionary team among every quarter of the country because the older you get, and statistically, 32 to 35, somewhere in there, your ability to learn a second language starts to tail off. Past 40, it drops off the table. Now, there are rare exceptions, and we find those rare exceptions. We'll test older students when they're coming into radius. Once they get past 32 to 35, we're going to test them to see where their aptitude is in that. If they have some musical background, people who have music in their background tend to learn languages a little bit better. Uh, if they have some unusual aptitude that God's given them, they can do that. But past that point of 32, 35, it really starts to wear on can they actually learn that language to full fluency. So when I speak, to, when I speak about young people, that's the primary reason is the younger you are, the faster you're going to learn a language. So there's always this yin and yang. I would love to have every missionary candidate go through RTS, go through RADIUS, and then go through some more Bible training. But by the time they get all that training, they're going to be in their 40s. And so you want to have them with sufficient training, but young enough to still learn a language before they can reach. And if you're going to get to those last unreached people groups, you've got to learn two languages. You go to China, you've got to learn Mandarin, then you've got to learn the minority people group within that Chinese country, within China, that still has no gospel and no disciples, no church. So that's why we're pressing on younger people because they're the ones typically that can learn these languages. Good question, though. I should have clarified that in my session. Maybe we can do one more. We'll take a break if there is one more.
Thank you. Yes, Mr. Brooks. Um, when you are heading out there for the first time and you were in the plane, and in the video at least, there was an indication you had made a choice between two villages or two separate people groups, I'm not sure. But the first one, the plane couldn't land because the airstrip was flooded. That clearly communicated to you correctly that you weren't supposed to go there, but the other choice was alternately God intervening and sending you to the right place. Could you elaborate how you dealt with that or uh, maybe some assurance uh, once you landed and or what became of that village that you weren't able to land on, mm. um, whether someone actually went there later on? Yeah, no, good question. Oh. Um, yeah, no, we, that was either in a podcast or maybe that's in the video, I can't remember. But we were going to a people group called the Tuwadi people. Uh, we wanted to go there that day when we were doing our initial surveys and we'd actually made a hit list, hit list being here's the three or four I think we had on the list. This would be our prioritization. And so Tuwadi was the highest for a variety of factors. Uh, when we had asked the pilot to, you in the mission agency that we were with, you would book a flight. And so that the pilot was going to fly you that day for that hour, and then it would take another week or so to book another flight. So it was more pragmatic in that here was our list. This one was off the list. What's the next one on the list? Can you go there today? And so that's why we made the decision to go to Yembiembi. We weren't committing to Yembiembi the first time we went there. We were more just going to see it, scout it out, take language samples, a bunch of video, that kind of thing. Um, and that's how we ended up among the MBMB people. By God's grace, there's a village that is close to Tuwadi. That's a dialect of theirs called the Pei people. And about four years ago, a team just went into the Pei people. And they presented the gospel last year. And a small kernel of a church is starting among the Pei people. So the hope is, as that church grows and stretches, they'll reach to the Tuwadi people someday. So I was very relieved to see that there's still others that were on that original list that still haven't got anybody that has gone to them yet but that's how we made the decision it was more just looking at the factors and what we had to deal with thank you